If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Did Georgian women really use mouse fur for fake eyebrows? Why could a trip to the hair salon make you spontaneously combust? And how have beauty standards for men changed throughout history? In today's Everything You Want to Know episode, we're tackling the long history of beauty. Answering your questions on the subject was Lucy Jane Santos a historian of health and beauty who's also the author of Half-Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium. Speaking to her was Rhiannon Davis. So before we dive in, this is a huge world-spanning topic and we can't cover it all. So in today's episode, we're going to be covering a few interesting areas that people have asked about, as well as topics that came up in popular online search queries. And hopefully this will inspire people to look into this subject more. So I'm going to start us off with a very big question, which is how have beauty standards changed throughout history? Yeah, this is a really big question to start off with. And I'm glad 
I'm glad we're going to start with it straight away. So the first thing to note about beauty is what is considered to be beautiful really does change. So it changes depending on the place and the decade. Um, it's also obviously linked with race, class, disability as well. Now, we did say this was a big topic to start off with. Beauty is, after all, a social construct. Um, so beauty standards, which is part of the question, are the ideals that women are expected to meet. And this is to in order to embody this idea a feminine beauty ideal. Um, so Eurocentric beauty standards really do dominate um, and they essentially become global beauty standards. Um, but whilst the dominant standard of beauty, female beauty in Western media may change slightly, the ideal of beauty that is usually held up is some sort of white, cis, thin woman. Um, and that embodies the, the, the prevalent fashion for beauty. Now, the key thing about beauty standards is they are meant to be unobtainable. So they always do have to shift. Um, so one trend that you see is sort of a, an oscillation between two different forms of beauty, um, still within this quite limited idea of white, um, white thin woman. But this is a pattern that you see uh, repeated throughout the centuries. Now, I work mainly on 20th century Britain and America. Um, and you see it, you see this oscillation a few times. And one of the most dramatic forms of it, I was thinking, was uh, the shift between the 1950s and the 1960s. So in the 1950s, you get this exaggerated feminine form, um, an hourglass figure, a tiny waist and a large chest. Now, in the 60s, what you see becoming the ideal beauty standard is almost a rejection of this, the complete opposite. So it's narrow hips and a very petite, uh, delicate, waif-like person. Um, now, of course, I really wanted to start off this by saying that because beauty, because the ideal beauty standard is consistently unobtainable, it can lead to all sorts of other effects like depression, body dissatisfaction, low self-esteem and eating disorders. So let's go back then to the beginning of beauty. We've had a question from Natalia Katora on Instagram who says, what are the first ever beauty products we know about? Products to achieve beauty have been around from the beginning of time, <laughs> as it were. But I think one of the most recognisable beauty products that have existed for a long time is cold cream. Now, cold cream, the earliest known recipe for this is attributed to um, a Greek physician, uh, Gallen, in the second century CE. Now, I believe that the recipe was originally intended um, as a cream to develop... Um, it was developed to heal minor wounds. And I did see something about how it was um, developed for gladiators um, to, to heal their wounds after they'd been fighting. Um, now, I'm not sure if that's true, but I love it as a story. A cold cream is a mixture of olive oil, beeswax, rose petals and water. And it's called cold cream because when the cream is applied to the skin, the water in it evaporates and the just gives a pleasant coolness to the skin, so cold cream. Um, so like I said, this the earliest recipe is the second century CE, but you find it all throughout different periods of history, and it finds its way into recipe books and household domestic manuals. Um, in the 19th century, it becomes um, a mass-produced 
um, product. So it's produced by companies such as Boots the Chemist. Um, and you typically get it in sort of earthenware pots with um, the maker's name written on the top of it. And you find them in all sorts of Victorian uh, domestic dumps and places like that. They come up quite often. It was clearly a big market. Um, and it still is still available today. You can still go and buy cold cream today. So it has an incredibly long history. Um, I was earlier going to talk about um, Pond's cold cream and how you could walk into Boots the Chemist and buy Pond's cold cream, which was massive in the 20s and 30s. It was the thing that you used on your face. But as, you, as I was doing some research, I found out that Pond's have discontinued their cold cream in 2020 which I had no idea about. So that's a very sad thing. Um, but anyway, that is what I think of as the first ever beauty product because it's something that we still recognise today. And continuing to think about ancient beauty then, what kind of makeup did the ancient Egyptians use? Um, we have so much information and so much evidence about what the ancient Egyptians um, used in terms of makeup. So... Um, one of the one of the biggest amounts of information is from uh, fun funerary goods. So um, cosmetics are one of the most common items that archaeologists have found being placed in tombs, so as grave goods. Now, the Egyptians, oversimplifying, but the Egyptians essentially were buried with objects that were considered to be um, central to their their everyday existence, and they were buried with things that they were felt that they would need in the afterlife. So um, in terms of um, the burial sites, they've found things like mirrors, hairpins, um, combs, cosmetic pots, uh, including eye makeup, containers and applicators. And these are made from a range of different materials, including marble, um, wood and alabaster. So you get very cheap items, but very, very expensive, good quality ones found as well. And so we know that cosmetics and makeup is clearly being used here. Now, it's about personal enhancement and self-esteem, but we also know that cosmetics are being used for health. Um, so they're softening your skin, protecting from sunburn, and also protecting your eyes as well. And from that range of cosmetics, we can find that cosmetics were made at home, but they were also manufactured professionally as well. And they were used by men and women of all different classes. In terms of makeup, the one that really sort of uh, springs to mind, both in the artistic depictions of ancient Egyptians, but also um, in the grave goods, is coal. So the sort of eyeliner. Now, this is traditionally made from grinding a colourful mineral into a powder, and then you mix it with a um, oil and fat, and then apply it to your eyes. Now, this did have. Um, it was used to protect the eyes from the burning sun and the sand, but it also had a clearly had some sort of ritualistic and beautifying um, use as well. It's sometimes difficult to uh, to really pin down exactly what the reasons people were using them for, but through that wealth of depiction and um, and also the, the archaeological survival, we can see that it was a popular thing in ancient Egypt. And thinking then about who wore makeup in the ancient world, you mentioned it was worn by men and women, but were there particular classes who wore makeup? Was it something enjoyed by everyone? Because it's a very ephemeral type of um, thing, we will 
mostly find evidence from it from the um, richer society. So you would find, not specifically to ancient Rome for this one, but you would find depictions of, in Egypt, a pharaoh or in Rome or um, Greece, you know, an elite wealthy person. Then you would find depictions of uh, lower class, poorer people. In terms of Roman makeup, we know that there were men in Rome who wore makeup, but actually the majority of the evidence about men and makeup in the Roman world is actually a criticism of makeup. And this is something that we'll probably come back to several times over this uh, discussion. But we know that there are plenty of um, plenty of uh, literary descriptions of people wearing makeup. Um, so wearing too much, for instance, whether that's a man or a woman. Um, being too old to wear makeup is also something that is talked about quite often. Uh, there's debates about whether it's deceitful or suspicious for a woman in particular to wear makeup. Are they conning their man into marriage? That type of thing. Um, and there's also complaints about the length of time that it would take for a woman to apply makeup um, as well. But in ancient Rome, wearing makeup does seem to be pretty universal. The evidence is, is more skewed towards women. You find that being discussed more often. Um, you don't find depictions um, of, of Roman women actually wearing makeup so that, um, as such. But like I said, you do see it in discussed about in literature um, and you see it in funerary sculptures and paintings of a woman sitting at her, essentially her dressing table, completing her, her face. So one of the things that is important to think about here is this definition of what is makeup. Um, so the, traditionally, there are products that are intended to improve the condition of the skin or slow down the aging process. And these are usually known as cosmetics. There are other types of products as well, which um, were designed to cover or enhance the skin. So that the category that includes things like face powders, lipstick and blush. Now, these are often known as makeup, but historically they were also known as cosmetics and they were also known as paint as well. Um, the term cosmetics can also include what we would more think of as toiletries as well. So things like shaving products and toothpaste, uh, talcum powders, even soap. So the idea of something being a cosmetic or a makeup is sometimes a quite slippery concept. And you definitely find that more and more when you go further and further back. When you think about someone in the ancient world wearing cosmetics, it's important to try and analyse whether it's paint or makeup or cosmetics or whether it's something as simple as soap, moisturiser or cold cream. And like I said, sometimes that can be quite difficult to unpick. Definitely. And I want to move our focus now to China and away from cosmetics to another practice associated with beauty, which is foot binding. Can you explain how that came about and how it was connected to beauty? So foot binding is a practice that is said to date back to um, around about the 10th century in China. Now, in the legend, it was inspired by a court dancer. Now, this court dancer bound her feet into the shape of the new moon. And the emperor at the time was so entranced by this. Now, that's the legend of it. Um, certainly in terms of archaeology, um, some archaeologists found a body of a woman who they knew had been buried in 1243. Now, her, um, her body was found and she had tiny feet. 
They'd been wrapped in gauze and they'd been placed inside specially shaped shoes, which are known as lotus shoes. So the core of foot binding is the lotus. And there's actually three different types of lotus. So there's the golden lotus, which is considered to be the best, which is where the foot is three um, three inches in length. There's the silver lotus, which is four inches, and then something called the iron lotus, which is anything bigger than four inches. So the practice of binding feet is all about making the foot small. Um, it's it's a long process to, to make this happen. It could take up to two years, and it's quite complex. But in its, its essence, all of the toes of the, the woman's feet, the girl's feet, um, are broken except the big toe. And these toes are bound flat against the sole of the foot. And it's in, it's in a triangle shape. And it's bound together using a silk strip. As I said, this could, takes up to two years uh, for the foot to, to be bound in this way, to grow in this way. And like I said, it is does involve breaking of the bones and binding them into place. Now, this practice seems to have spread from the court to wealthy elites and then eventually across the country. And we're talking a long period of history, um, hundreds of years, and there's various ebbs and flows of the practice. Um, But I've seen figures that estimate that as many as 2 billion Chinese women had their feet bound in this way. And now it's primarily an upper class um, thing. And like I said, it's um, up to 2 billion over its history. Now, how it's actually linked to beauty is very interesting. So the conventional view is that it was done to please men who were attracted to small feet. Um, But there are also other economic and cultural arguments for the practice as well. So it's been argued that it represented social status. So the idea of a wealthy elite not needing to work. Um, There's also an argument that it made women more dependent on their male household um, because their movements were restricted. Um, I also read that um, in some households, the reason was ensuring a compliant workforce of young girls. So in these households, there was a need for weaving um, and making products, thus bringing in money for the family and binding their feet would make them sit still and therefore be able to carry out their work. Now, again... (sighs) With many of these beauty practices, it is very difficult to establish one reason why people did it. The easy answer is often because men like it. But actually, when you start thinking about it further, that doesn't always hold up as the case. In terms of feet binding, um, this practice starts to die out in the early 20th century. But actually, the last factory um, that makes these lotus shoes didn't close till 1999. So it's a huge, long history. And within that, there were going to be so many different interpretations and reasons why people did it. And I want to go next to a question from Gothic Heart 81 asked on Twitter. What has been the feminist response to beauty standards throughout history? So beauty standards have always been a prominent challenge for feminists. And again, over different historical periods, feminists' um, responses has varied. Now, there's lots of debates about whether um, a woman cultivating her appearance, conforming to these standards, is empowering, or whether she's collaborating in her own oppression. Now, that's one of the 
big debates that feminist thoughts have. Um, I also think it's really interesting to think about the way in which beauty has been weaponized against feminists as well. So um, feminists are often portrayed as ugly. Um, and this is this is used as a way to undermine their message, undermine their political asks. And you can really see this in um, anti-suffrage propaganda of the early 20th century, um, things like postcards and magazines and publications. They're denouncing the, the suffrage um, suffragists and suffragettes as unfeminine, unnatural and militant. Uh, there's a great story from the early 1900s um, from a newspaper called uh, Votes for Women. Now, they were talking about a meeting that was held in South London. And a man at the meeting commented that the suffragettes, if the suffragettes were better looking, they would have a better chance of winning the right to vote, <laughs> which I think is um, an amazing quote. Um, apparently, um, the speaker who was uh, speaking to this group of suffragettes, responded to this and said, if good looks are to be the basis of the franchise, many of the gentlemen present would lose their vote and most decidedly our friend. That is a good response, isn't it? And I wanted to circle back now to something that you mentioned earlier in the episode, which is that beauty has often followed a Eurocentric ideal. How have different cultures used makeup to lighten or darken their skin? Skin lightening or skin bleaching is is usually is a cosmetic procedure. Now it aims to lighten dark areas of the skin or to achieve a paler skin tone. Um, as with many cosmetic practices, that's what it is on the surface. But as with many cosmetic practices, when you actually look deeper and consider the cultural context of what it means to lighten the skin tone, you can see that it's clearly linked to lots of other things. So it's linked to racism, um, but it also intersects with with, uh, dynamics of gender and the changing beauty ideals and standards. Now, the idea of lightening your skin has existed for millennia. And you can see um, the practice of lighting the skin in places um, like ancient Egypt, in the ancient world, in Greece and in the uh, the Roman world as well, in Mesopotamia, in China and Japan. Now, in many of these cases, lightening skin is is associated with belonging to a higher class. So um, some of the theory is that the lighter skin signifies that the person doesn't do manual labour, therefore is of a higher social class. Uh, It's also a sign of beauty, youth and wealth as well. Um, as an as- well, almost as an aside here, it's interesting to note the difference between skin whiteners, which are which create white faces using creams. Um, so you have the Venetian ceruse, which is a, a mixture made of lead that was popular in um, Elizabethan period, um, or powders like chalk as well. Now these lighten. Um, these whiten the skin even. Um, but skin lighteners are skin bleachers, or also sometimes known as freckle removers as well. Now, they do something different. So they are using, um, so you can get something that's quite acidic, like lemon juice and milk um, to lighten um, the skin. Or you can use harsher chemicals like sulfur, arsenic and mercury. Now, looking through uh, beauty manuals, um, in particular, you can see lots of recipes about how to lighten your skin at home. But it's the 20th century when when this really changes and you start getting mass-produced skin lightening creams. 
um, and it becomes one of the world's most popular types of cosmetics as well. Um, there's also a shift in the 1920s, which gets to the second part of this question. So many white consumers in the, in the late 1920s become interested in tanning their skin. So sunbathing and spending time outside was part of a leisured lifestyle. This is now seen as a marker of class. And essentially tanning here is embodying a new form of white privilege. Skin lighteners then really start to become associated with people of colour, and it's inextricably linked to uh, white supremacist and colonialist ideology. So light skin here and skin lighteners here um, is linked to increasing privileges and higher social standing, uh, better employment, um, and better prospects, uh, which are a reward for alignment to whiteness. Um, now, this is not something that is just historical. Um, the global trade in skin lighteners now, um, I saw some figures earlier, is estimated by 2024, it's estimated to reach um, $21 billion. So this is a huge industry now as well. Um, and it's frequently the object of um of challenges to the use of these products as well. Now, one of the big concerns surrounding them is the ingredients that are used to make them, many of which are toxic, and many of them are still the same toxic ingredients that have been used for 100 years. Um, one that I always think about in terms of skin lightening products is the use of mercury. Now, this is a hugely dangerous and toxic ingredient and can be found in lots of skin lightening products today as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I really do think a lot about the women who are using these petrol substances, and they were incredibly popular, who spontaneously combust, who accidentally were set on fire. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. 
At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And you mentioned that toxicity and we've had a lot of interest about dangerous beauty practices throughout history. So we've had Leah Welch 7672 and the Little Chickens who both contacted us via Instagram and said, what was the most dangerous product used for beauty in history? So there are absolutely tons of dangerous products in the history of beauty. Um, I've mentioned mercury earlier. Uh, There's also products that use things like thallium. So there was a hair removal product in the 1930s that was using thallium, which is a highly dangerous element. Arsenic was used regularly. There's a massive trend for arsenic beautifiers in the 1890s. Uh, Radium and x-rays were also being used regularly for beauty um, in beauty products and beauty treatments in the early 1920s as well. And now all of those are quest- all of those are answers to that question. But I was thinking about the thing that was the most immediate danger that I could think of because often poisoning takes a little bit of time to kick in. There's not enough thallium in your um, hair removal cream to poison you straight away. So when I was thinking about the most dangerous product uh, for beauty, I was thinking about Victorian hair tonics that actually use petroleum. Um, So there's examples of things like uh, the wonderfully named Madame Fox's Life for the Hair. So this is made from an extract of bay leaves and petroleum. Now this is essentially a dry shampoo. So it's stripping the hair of dust um, and oils and you can use it use it and other products similar to that in the home or in the salon now newspapers of the time frequently tell of disastrous consequences of using this type of product that there's one from 1897 where a lady called um uh, uh, fanny samuelson she died after her hair caught alight during a petrol treatment at an upmarket salon in London. Now, there was an inquest behind this, and it was determined that the petrol in the product was so unstable that the friction that was caused by rubbing her hair with a towel had led to spontaneous combustion. Um, And there are other examples of this as well. Um, So petrol isn't just dangerous in products with the friction. There was an actress in the late 1890s, I believe, and she was having her hair styled before a performance. Um, And her hairdresser was styling it with this petrol lotion. Now, a few drops of it fell from the bottle or whatever he was using and fell onto a stove that was nearby her. And it set fire to her hair and to her clothes. Um, it's a horrible, tragic story, actually. She um, was properly on fire. This is, uh, it's petrol. Um, she actually um, had, she tried to throw herself out of the window. She tried to throw herself out of the window, but she was actually pulled back. But her burns were so horrific that she actually died 10 hours later. So although a lot of answers to that type of question focuses on the mercury and the arsenic and the lead, all of these really, really dangerous things, I really do think a lot about the women who are using these petrol substances, and they were incredibly popular, who 
spontaneously combust who accidentally were set on fire. And it's not just the women using them as well. It was also the hairdressers and their maids and all of the other people involved in this as well. So it's it's a really horrible thought, actually. Um, but I think it's worth thinking about some of the less traditionally poisonous ideas of dangerous beauty and think about those immediate um, dangers that people were facing. Definitely. Weren't people put off by the stories of catching on fire when you used a petroleum <laughs> treatment? Um, probably. Um, I haven't seen too much about that. But I think ultimately, if there's very little option or indeed you're promised that the rewards of this using this product are so great, you know, this is a period where a woman's hair is her crowning glory. The promises of using this product, well, I'll just be careful. Uh, you know, that's how you you rationalise it, don't you? I mean, there was examples of, in salons, they were used, when it was really realised that petrol is really, really dangerous, um, they started developing other products that worked on a similar principle, that they stripped the hair but they were just as bad as well. So there's, um, but there was one that was uh, marketed as a as an alternative to petrol. But actually, if you didn't have the windows open and cu- constantly flapping the windows and circulating the air, you could pass out because they were so strong and so dangerous. And there was someone who had an induced heart attack, I believe, because of the vapours, because of the fumes. And really, at this point, there isn't too much else they can use, especially in a salon setting as well. Often these salons would not have had hot and cold running water. So you needed something that didn't require water to dress a woman's hair. You never think of working in a salon in history being dangerous, but I've certainly changed my mind during this conversation. Let's move from the dangerous to the bizarre. We've had quite a few questions in. So I'm going to go to Levine Marie 1775 from Twitter, who said, what was the most unusual beauty standard in history? This is a fascinating and brilliant question, but really, really hard to answer because there are so many to choose from. Now, one of the things is that we always look slightly askance at the standards of the generation before and the generation after as well. We always do. Um, In terms of unusual beauty standards, the thing that keeps... Now, this doesn't sound very unusual, but bear with me for a second. Um... There are, I mean, there are lots of weird and wonderful things that people do to their faces. But the thing that I think of often is eyebrows. Now, this is such an ex- it's part of the expression of our face. Um, you can think a lot about eyebrows or you can think very little about eyebrows. People tend to be in two different camps. But eyebrows as a beauty standard or something that we aspire to change rapidly. Now, I grew up in the 90s. So that's when I was a teenager. So everything at that point is razor thin, low arched. Um, This is a polar opposite to the 1980s, where it's the sort of bushy caterpillar eyes. You don't want that. No. 90s was about the razor thin eyes. Now, um, eyebrows. Now, the thing with eyebrows is... It's quite easy to pluck them and it's very easy to overpluck them as well. And it can be quite brutal. So an overplucked eyebrow can be a permanent thing. And um, that's a permanent something that you have done to your face based on fashion. Very few other things that we do in the normal course of just standing in your um, bathroom looking in the mirror can have such a significant effect long term. 
by the way, I was very lucky. My 90s eyebrows grew back. <laughs> but <laughs> so sometimes they never grow back and you've left with this permanent symbol of a time before on your face. Um, so that's what I'm thinking about unusual beauty standards. It's again, not the dramatic, um, but the little everyday things that we do. But there is an example of an unusual beauty standard that is linked to eyebrows that I am going to shoehorn in right now. Now we're talking now in the Renaissance period. So the period here is it's fashionable to pluck the eyelash and the forehead. So the idea at this point is that um, absence of body hair is the fashion. So all hair should be plucked. Now this includes, as I said, the eyebrows, the eyelashes, and even the forehead as well. So the, the beauty standard here is to have a very high curved, prominent forehead. Um, and by plucking the hairline, you're making your forehead larger. And there are images of women who have plucked their forehead as much as I did my eyebrows in the 90s. So it's very, very prominent. And again, also, so you've this unusual beauty standard here is a very prominent um, forehead, but also no eyebrows and no eyelashes as well. It's very visual. Um, it's a very visual thing. And again, as I said, would their eyebrows have grown back in a few years after the fashion had changed? I don't know, but I imagine 10 years later, it was almost definite that the bushy eyebrow would have been back in fashion again. Of course it would, because beauty standards are not meant to be achievable. They're not meant to be permanent. So would you stick some mouse fur onto your eyebrows or is that just a legend? <laughs> the mouse fur, fake eyebrows. Now this is the 18th century. Now, what we can definitely say about the 18th century eyebrow is that a very nice curved eyebrow is in vogue. Uh, we know that. We can see that in the um, artistic representations. We can see it in beauty manuals. A good eyebrow is the thing. Now, to get this good eyebrow, you could use um, various uh, methods. You could use like uh, the juice of elderberries or a burnt powder um, that's made from either cork or clove, something to, to colour your eyebrows. So we know that's used to draw and accentuate the brows. Also know that fake brows were on sale. So if you couldn't get enough of a good eyebrow, through your cork or your clove, you could buy and stick on fake eyebrows. Um, this was particularly good for people whose eyebrows not only didn't just match the, the well-defined um, ideal, but actually if your eyebrows had sort of fallen out, because also at this time, there is a bit of fashion for lead face powder. So there's a fashion for whitening your face using lead, which one of the consequences of using lead is that your hair falls out. At this point, that's not what you want to do. You want a full brow. So you've used your lead powder, your eyebrows have fallen out, so you bought your fake eyebrows and stuck them on. And that probably would have been the end of the story about uh, false eyebrows in the 18th century. It's not that interesting. But one of the things that you get at this point is that there are satirical poems that reference women using uh, mouse fur as these fake eye eyebrows. Um, and you get several of them. Um, but what you don't get is any other evidence of it. So there's nothing in um, that you, there's no portrait of a woman that has been definitively shown that she's her beautiful eyebrows are 
uh, mouse hair. Um, more crucial to that, there's no um, mention of it in any articles or, or uh, beauty manuals. You know, these people who are writing these beauty manuals are not shy about mentioning things. They wouldn't say, they wouldn't not mention <laughs> if they were using mouse for, uh, for eyebrows. So I'm really thinking it never happened. I mean, you can't 100% <laughs> say that nobody ever did it but it doesn't seem to be a thing outside of these hysterical um poems and also at a very fundamental level I just think it's really overcomplicating something you know there is no need for it <laughs> so I don't think it happened so earlier on in our conversation you mentioned men and beauty and we've had some questions in about this so I'm going to go to Iona Kellis who asked on Instagram what has beauty looked like for men throughout history? Again this is a really brilliant question Um, and there are several different ways that you can interpret the idea of beauty for men. So you can think about men participating in the practice of beauty. So hairdressers, for instance. I mean, one of the the crucial things to remember is that early hairdressers were mostly men. Um, so you've got your barbers, for instance, but also women would if, would be going to men hairdressers rather than women hairdressers. It's not until um, around about the First World War in Britain that women start coming into the um, into the industry in any great numbers. Um, You've also got men and beauty, you can think about through uh, their shaping of the ideas of beauty culture as well, through art and literature, and also their critiques of it as well. So um, many of the ideas that we have of beauty comes from the critiques of men. But men have also been partakers of beauty too, and in various forms. So uh, I mean, very uh, general level here. You've got the pharaohs of ancient Egypt wearing eyeliner. Roman men would apply red pigments to their cheeks. Um, in the 18th century, you've got the very fashionable um, macaronis and the dandies, for instance, who were wore tight-fitting clothes, wigs, and uh, powdered their faces. Now, it's not until the 19th century, um, particularly in, in Britain and America, that you start getting these narrowed down definitions of masculinity, which removes the idea of beauty as a masculine pursuit or a masculine ideal. Um, And cosmetics, if we sort of go into cosmetics, not just beauty, cosmetics for men, especially paint for men, becomes increasingly taboo and legislated as the 19th century goes on. So makeup and by extension, a man who wishes to pursue beauty becomes a source of concern. Um, It's a deviation from societal norms. Um, And it's these sort of gender binaries that come in in the 19th century and the uh, the restrictions on the expression as well. These are exported around the world. These ideas are exported around the world and the impact of this is felt right into the 20th century and even today as well. And at the start of our conversation, you mentioned how body ideals have changed. And this is where I wanted to go next for our next part of the conversation. Um, we've got a very interesting question asked on Instagram by Jurianne Gabriel, who says, how has height been factored into beauty concepts about bodies throughout history? It's a very slippery concept. But in terms of height, um, so height is linked with beauty, 
you know, that's just the statement I'm going to make. It is genuinely linked to beauty. How exactly that looks like is, is like I said, a much more slippery concept to, to get our heads around. But there is a normal, acceptable height range for both men and for women. Um, and people are expected to measure up against that. In terms of women, height seems to be linked to the trait of femininity. So femininity in this sense, is a, it's better to be short than to be tall. Um it makes more sense when the woman is short than when she is tall. Um, so the taller women sort of, they deviate from this. And by deviating from the beauty standards and the beauty ideal, we know the dangers of that. You know, you run into societal blockades at this point, you know, uh, there's discrimination, there's heightism, there's all sorts of um, implications about just being too tall. Um, and height is a really I find it so fascinating because many of the other beauty standards, there's more you can do about it, I guess. Um, you know, with height, it's a very, very slippery and tricky concept, especially when you think about uh, height as a beauty trend. Um, I, was, I was thinking about 20th century beauty and um, in the 1940s, you start getting taller women being considered to be beautiful. And I was thinking about um, Catherine Hepburn, for instance. Uh, I believe she was around about five foot eight. That's a taller woman compared to 20 years earlier when the flapper archetype is uh, five foot one. I think the ideal, ideal height for a flapper in the 1920s is five foot one, five foot two, something like that. That's quite a big change in 20 years. It's really not achievable as well. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. There would be some very high heels if you wanted to try and fabricate that. So you also mentioned earlier that the ideal has generally been thinness. Has that always been true throughout history or have there been points where um, larger frames were seen as more beautiful? Again, it very much depends on where you're talking about and what times you're talking about as well. Um, A voluptuous frame, and I'm using voluptuous in a very expansive way here, um, as anything other than quite skinny, I would imagine, um, is often held up as as an ideal in the sense that it signifies someone is well-fed. You know, it's a comfort uh, weight, perhaps. It's someone who's well-fed, perhaps rich, you know, all of those things as well. But even as you get that, most of the time, especially in, as I said, I do Britain and America in the 20th century, it's just different types of thinness. You can have different types of body fat, maybe your boobs or your bum or sometimes the waist is um, slightly curvier but you're meant to be thin everywhere else somehow Um, so really in the 20th century in particular it's just different types of thinness with 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 fat in different areas Um, I actually watched this amazing video um, a few weeks ago and it's um, um, on a website called Greatest Um, and what they did is they just had an illustration of uh, different body types over 100 years. It's really striking. You know academically, you know in the core of your being that a 60s waif body is very different from a Marilyn Monroe 1950s style. But just seeing it flash at you like that, you know, image after image after image just shows how ridiculous 
<laughs> it is to think about beauty ideals in terms of bodies, how they change so much in 10 years, um, each each decade. Um, it's really, it's, it was really illuminating and it was actually rather devastating as well. And for our final question for this Everything episode, I'd like to go to TW who asked on Twitter, what is considered beautiful today that would have seemed very odd to past generations? So, <laughs> probably, every, well, this is the shorter answer, I would imagine. Everything, but at the <laughs> same time, nothing. So every trend that you can read about that's happening today has happened before. Um, one of my joys in life is buying a product that's touted as the newest thing and then finding a version that's almost exactly the same from 100 years ago. Um I was reading about the trend for dimples. I have dimples myself, so I'm on trend with this. But I was reading about a trend for dimples, and they're talking about ways of achieving it. Now, there's a dimple maker from the 1930s, which is basically just a, a piece of metal that you insert into your cheeks, and it, it you know it doesn't actually give you permanent dimples, but it causes a depression, and you have a little dimple. So there's nothing new there. But I was thinking about the biggest... Um, what is considered beautiful today is probably our access to appearance enhancing tools. So this idea of digital beauty, digi beauty. So this requires no products, no alterations. Um, it's on our phones, it's on our screens. We can filter, we can add makeup, we can create flawless complexions, you know, brighter teeth. We can do all of those things digitally, but obviously there's different, you know, when we meet someone in real life, we do not have access to that. Um, I also was thinking that I think the um, the way that we recognise and are starting to talk about toxic beauty standards as well um, would con- be considered very odd to past generations. You know, we are seeing brands uh, seeking to achieve, and in some cases closer than others, achieving uh, diversity and inclusivity. Um, and I think... The freedom of gender expression as well is something that also would be would seem odd to past generations. Now, I'm not saying that we are be, we are perfect or we are free from any of those toxic standards of the past. Um, and of course, those toxic standards are still with us. I mean, there's the diet culture, for instance, is worth seventy two billion dollars annually, and we've talked about skin lightening products as continuing to be a massive global industry. So I think. You know, everything that we do would surprise past generations, but that is just how history works. That was Lucy Jane Santos. Her books include Half Lives, The Unlikely History of Radium, which is published by Icon and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. <laughs>